Well, good morning. My name is Michael. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here. And I want to share something with you and just ask that you would not judge me too harshly or critically in this. But one of my favorite movies is Rocky IV. If you were to ask what my other favorite movies are, I would say Rocky I and II, and then Rocky III, and then Rocky V was pretty embarrassing, but he recovered in Rocky Balboa, and then the whole Creed series started. But I love Rocky IV. Now, if you are not at all familiar with the greatest storyline ever, uh, I will refresh your memory, but uh, Rocky's best friend, Apollo Creed, is in a fight with uh, this Russian evil man named Ivan Drago. And in the fight, Apollo is just pummeled literally to the point of death. And as Rocky is holding his best friend, Apollo Creed, in his arms, and he's just dying right there, Ivan Drago looks over at Rocky and in the middle of the ring just says, if he dies, he dies. And from that moment on, it is game on uh, with Rocky Balboa. And the whole rest of the movie is about this showdown that is brewing between this undersized underdog named Rocky Balboa, uh, who will avenge his BFF's death by fighting this performance-enhancing, drugged-up Ivan Drago. So the whole movie, this tension builds of wondering what is going to happen when these two finally meet and step into the ring. Now, in a somewhat but not really at all similar way, uh, there has been some tension building of what is going to happen when Moses returns to Egypt to do battle with Pharaoh, a.k.a. Drago. Like, what is good? I just love talking about Rocky, so anytime I have the chance, I just try to work it in. But as we've been navigating the story of Exodus, what is going to happen when Moses finally returns to Egypt? Now, we know that Moses had all sorts of doubts and just fears and concerns and questions heading back to Egypt, but one of the things that I love is he showed up. He showed up back in Egypt doing everything that God had told him and instructed him to do. And what I love about Moses is when he returns to Egypt to meet Pharaoh, he's just different. Like he has completely, he's a changed man. He has this confidence and conviction that we've not yet seen with Moses. And so this is the very first interaction that Moses has with Pharaoh upon returning to Egypt. It's in chapter 5. Just read one verse. After this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron had first met with them. After this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh. They told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Now, keep in mind that Moses, he is standing in front of the most powerful man ruling the most powerful nation on the planet. And notice what Moses does not do in this moment. He doesn't ask Pharaoh for permission. He doesn't negotiate with Pharaoh. He simply tells Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, I want you to know, this is what God is telling you to do. And what God is telling you to do is let my people go. Now, again, keep in mind, this is Pharaoh. 
He's not used to people telling him what to do. In fact, if you as so much as annoyed the man, he could end your life just like that. And so this is a really bold Moses and Aaron standing before this man, letting him know that God is telling you that this is what you must do. Now, as you maybe might expect, Pharaoh's response to Moses was less than ideal. In verse 2, this is Pharaoh. Is that so, replied Pharaoh, and who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, the response that Pharaoh gives, again, not shocking, is just simply, who is your God that I should actually take him seriously? Who is your God that I should pay attention to him, that I should listen to him and do what he is saying? Now, let's be honest. If you don't know who God is, why on earth would you submit or surrender to any plans that God might have for you and your life? Keep in mind, though, this is Pharaoh. He thinks he is God. He thinks he is a deity, and especially a deity over the Hebrew people because he decides when they sleep, he decides when they wake, he decides when they eat, ultimately he decides when they die. So he's confused as to, wait, I'm God, who are you to say that another God should be telling me what I should do? So again, his response is not altogether that shocking, but this is what is shocking to me as I was sitting in this story this past week. When people who actually know who God is refuse to submit and surrender to what God has for them and wants for them in their life. Pharaoh's response, that's not really that shocking. But what is shocking is when people who actually know God have a relationship with God and know who God is and what God is like and know the heart of God. What's shocking is when we refuse to submit and surrender our life to what God's plan, desires, or ways, or will is. Now, it's safe to say no one here would want to identify in this story with Pharaoh. No one wants to identify with Pharaoh, but every time we choose not to submit and surrender our lives to what God wants for us, we pull a Pharaoh. Every time we just know what God wants us to do and we refuse to do it, we pull a Pharaoh. Every time we re refuse to maybe forgive someone, every time we refuse to love someone or to encourage someone, to give of ourselves to someone else, to maybe bless them, every time we refuse to even maybe share our faith with someone, any time that we refuse to do what God, we know God is inviting, calling us to do as Christians, any time we do that, we simply pull a Pharaoh. And so one of the questions I'd ask all of us to consider is, is there any places right now in your life where you're pulling a Pharaoh? where you're resembling more of Pharaoh in this story than maybe Moses, who is just walking in obedience to what God has called him, invited him to do. Any place that you can look back over the past week where you knew God wanted you to do something, to say something, to give something, to challenge, bless, or encourage, and you didn't do that. Because the encouragement would be, we've got to repent of that. We don't want to align ourselves at all, connect with Pharaoh in this story. Now, knowing what we know about Moses, meaning his fears and his doubts and just his unique ability to argue with God, what would you envision 
Moses' response to Pharaoh would be? Because Pharaoh just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I would initially think that Moses' response would be like, God, I told you it wasn't going to work. And I told you this would happen, and I did everything you told me to do. I came back, I said to Pharaoh what you told me to say, it didn't work, I'm gone, peace out. I absolutely love Moses' response to Pharaoh saying, I'm not listening to you, certainly not listening to your God. But Aaron and Moses persisted. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared, so let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we don't, he will kill us with a plague or with a sword. In this moment... Moses, he pulls a Rocky Balboa. Now, again, you're not familiar with the Rocky story. That guy gets knocked down so many times in every film. But what everyone loves about Rocky Balboa is he continues just to get up no matter how much he gets knocked down. Moses and Aaron, gosh, they have some fight in them. They're standing before the most powerful man on the planet, and it says that Moses and Aaron, they persisted. They persisted. They were told no, and they didn't back down. They went back and said, no, this is what God is saying to you, Pharaoh. My question is, what changed in Moses? How is he standing in front of this man with so much power, persisting that this guy must listen to his God? I wrote down in my journal the answer to that as I was thinking about it this week. Encounters with God change my encounter with you. An encounter with God that you and I have will change our encounters with the men and women, the people around us. Did you catch what Moses told Pharaoh? Hey, Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews, he met with us. The God of the Hebrews, he talked to us. The God of these people that you are ruling and reigning, he met with us and he told us what his plans and his purposes are. See, what changed Moses, what's going to change you and I, is ultimately just meeting with God. I don't think Moses mysteriously became this man of just great confidence and great conviction. I think Moses had roughly six months to travel from Midian, where he was in the desert, back to Egypt. And in that six months, he got time to ponder how he got to meet with the God of the universe and how God had met with him. I don't know if you know this, but you have the opportunity to meet with God every single day. You and I have the opportunity to meet with and to connect with God every moment of every single day. Every time we open our Bible, every time we just spend moments bend our knee in prayer. Every time we gather like this, every time you might connect with men and women in your group, every time you choose just to serve somebody else, every time that we do those things, we have the opportunity to meet with God in those ways. And when we meet with God, it's going to change how you begin meeting with other people. That's what happened to Moses. He met with God. He had an encounter God encounter with God, and it changed his encounter that he had with Moses. But here's the really hard reality of this story in Exodus 5. Encountering God will change how I encounter you, but it might not actually change you. It might not change you. Moses was changed by his encounter with God, but that did not translate to Pharaoh being changed himself. And as we're about to see, encounters with God 
does not always translate to a change in situation or circumstance either. I think it's easy to have this assumption or expectation that, hey, I just met with God, and I heard from God, and I just have the hope or anticipation or expectation that everyone around me and everything, uh, situationally speaking, is going to change because of what just happened with me and God. And I think the change we are expecting is it's going to change for the better. But I want you to listen to Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron persisting that he let the people go. In verse 4, Pharaoh replied, uh, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their task? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people in the land, and you are stopping them from their work. So Pharaoh, he doesn't change his response But did you notice what he begins to shed light on? All the people have what they have not had in decades. They now have hope. Why are you distracting the people? Many of your people have stopped working. So imagine just for a moment, all of the people that have been in bondage for just years, decades, they're now wondering, gosh, has God finally answered our prayers for freedom? Has, is Moses really going to deliver us? Is our years of bondage, is it really ending? I think Pharaoh knew that hope was on the rise in Egypt. Why? Well, because Moses is on it. He's going toe-to-toe right now with Pharaoh demanding that he let the people go. So this is a hard question, but which is more painful, living without hope or catching a glimpse of hope only to have it disappear? Because to me, to live without hope is just unimaginable. But then also having hope only to have it snuffed out is just unbearable. So both are just equally painful. And what makes this Exodus story so hard is that before it gets better, it's about to get a whole lot worse. Because listen to what Pharaoh does next to the people. Verse 6, the same day, Pharaoh sent this order to the Egyptian slave drivers And the Israelite foreman, do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves, but still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce their quota. They are lazy. That's what they are crying out. Let us, that's why they are crying out. Let us go and offer our sacrifices to our God. Load them down with more work and make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. Notice that Pharaoh, he doesn't increase their quota that was expected of them. They weren't required to make more bricks. Rather, he just makes their task even more difficult. Now, as I was thinking about that, what was the point? Like, why was he doing that? And I think Pharaoh knew something of the power of pain. Namely, pain often leads us to believing things about God that are just not true. Pain in someone's life has a way not only to distract people from God, but it has a way to get us to question God. Anytime pain enters our story, some of the questions that begin to flood our hearts and mind is, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? If you were God and you cared, you would do something about this. And I think Pharaoh knew if I can just bring these people even into greater pain in their life, 
it will get them to not only question Moses and his leadership, but ultimately it will get them to question God that he does not actually care about them. And when the pain increased in their story, in their life, notice who the people of God turned to to actually find relief. It says in verse 15 of this story in chapter 5, the Israelite foremen went to Pharaoh, and remember, they're representing uh, the people of God, went to Pharaoh and they pleaded with him, please don't treat your servants like this. I read that verse and I was like, how ironic, how quickly they had forgotten they were turning to the very one who they had been crying out to be delivered from. It makes no sense. They'd been crying out to God for years and years and years, God, deliver us from Egypt, deliver us from the hand of this man. But yet when pain came, increased pain, I should say, they turned to the very person that they'd been praying God would deliver them from to actually find relief. So the question I was asking myself is, when pain enters my story, whether that be a physical pain, an emotional or maybe a mental pain, a relational pain or circumstantial who or what do I turn to for relief? Like when pain hits you in any shape it might come in, who do you turn to or what do you turn to for relief? Like the people of God, how often do we keep looking to the very things that cause us pain to actually find relief from the pain? If you've ever battled uh, alcoholism or worked with men and women who have battled alcoholism, the very thing that they want to find freedom from is the very thing that they turn to to find relief. If you've ever battled and, and wrestled and struggled with pornography, the very thing that you are crying out, I want to be free from this garbage. I'm in bondage to this, but yet I turn to this to find relief from the pain that I have. It makes absolutely no sense that the things that we want to be free from are the very things that we turn to to find relief. Why do we do this? I think the answer is pretty simple. We want relief, not relationship. We want relief from our pain, not necessarily relationship. Wanting relief from pain is not the same thing as actually wanting a relationship with God. And this might be hard to hear and to understand, but God is more concerned about a relationship with you than he is relieving you from any pain that you might have whether it be physical or situational or relational or emotional, God is more concerned about his relationship with you than the relief that you desire. If we expect redemption to be mainly about getting us out of an uncomfortable circumstance into a much more comfortable situation, then we will constantly be battling disappointment. We're constantly be battling disappointment with God, disappointment for not doing for us what we want God to do most for us. But as one who's battled and wrestled with disappointment uh, a lot in my adult life, disappointment that just often manifested itself in despair and depression and depressive tendencies, here's what God's helped me see about my disappointments. God often uses disappointment to shape greater dependence upon Him. God uses the disappointments that we have to shape greater dependence upon Him. So I want to encourage you this morning, pay attention to the disappointments you have because your disappointments are currently revealing what you're ultimately depending on. 
So think for a moment, what are the disappointments that you have? Maybe it's a, a marriage or not being married. Maybe it's something with your kids or not having kids. Maybe it's something with work, a relationship or a dynamic there. Maybe something in school. But think through what are the disappointments you currently are having. And I can almost promise you that God is using those disappointments in your life to ultimately reveal to you and show you what you are ultimately depending upon. Now, I'm not suggesting that disappointments in and of themselves are somehow sinful. I think disappointments are a big part of the journey that God has for each of us. Moses was extremely disappointed in the results of his interaction with Pharaoh. But here's the difference. Moses didn't go to Pharaoh with his disappointments like the people of God did, asking for relief. Moses took his disappointments directly to God. In chapter 5, towards the end of the story, we get insight into how Moses handled and dealt with his disappointment. Then Moses went back to the Lord and he protested. Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he's been even more brutal to your people and you have done nothing to rescue them. Gosh, imagine the audacity to go to God and point your finger, you've done nothing. You clearly do not care. Imagine this moment of Moses being as raw as he possibly could before God. Notice what Moses does. He questions God's goodness. God, why have you caused so much trouble for your people? He's, he's questioning God's goodness. He questions God's purpose and his plans. God, why did you send me? That was a terrible idea. And then he questions God's just inactivity. You've done nothing to help them. So in this moment that we have with Moses, we see that Moses is struggling a great deal with God, namely disappointment with God. And I'm guessing all of us here at some place in our story can relate with Moses in this moment. Disappointment with God. I want to finish by just sharing one thing that God's been teaching me through Exodus 5 about how do we actually navigate disappointment in our life. It's going to be part of our journey but how do we navigate disappointment? Three words that have been helpful to me. Trust the process. It's safe to say that the people of God had a very different perspective on what rede God's redemption was about. Like I mentioned, they wanted relief, but he wanted relationship with them. He wanted the people of God to know God, to know his heart, to know his power, to know his glory. And we read the Exodus story through the lens of knowing that God is going to get them out, but they did not know that. We read the story of Exodus, and we know that God, in the most amazing, miraculous ways, gets them out, but they didn't know that. Moses knew God was going to get them out of Egypt, but pain, coupled with disappointment, even got Moses forgetting that in the end, God wins. When you forget that in the end, God wins, disappointment will plague the process that he actually has you and I in. But if you can remember that God wins, you can trust the process that God has you in and is taking you through. 
Now, as I confessed earlier, I love Rocky. I love Rocky IV. And every time I watch that movie, I know that in the end, spoiler alert, Rocky beats the Russian. I know that happens. And when Rocky is getting pounded by Drago, I'm thinking to myself as I watch this movie, hang tight, Italian stallion. Like, you're going down right now. You're getting hit hard right now. But hang tight because just in a little bit, you'll be standing victorious soon enough. As you read the Exodus story, it's hard not to just want to cheer for them. I know it looks like Pharaoh has the upper hand. And I know the pain is real. Like we want to cheer for them and tell them, but guys, you got to trust the process that God has you in. It's not just about redeeming you so you have relief from your pain. He's redeeming you so that you can have relationship with Him and know Him. And know the heart of God. And see the power of God. And see just the beauty of the glory of God. We want to tell them, hang tight. Trust the process that God has you in, because in the end, God wins. We would do that for them, and I wonder why we don't do that for ourselves. Because I don't know the process that God has you in right now. I don't know what maybe the pain or the disappointment is right now in our lives, collectively speaking. But if we would do that for the men and women of Exodus, why can we not do that for ourselves? To say, you can trust the process that God has me in right now because in the end, I know Jesus has already won. If you forget the end, disappointment will plague you. But if you can remember that Jesus is not going to win one day, but Jesus has already won the day, it will change the process and how you view it, and how you navigate, and how you walk through the process that God has you in. But please hear and know and remember, God is not primarily most concerned about relief in your life. He wants to bring you to the point where what you want more than anything is not relief from something, but relationship with Him. Two verses that have been helpful to me, written by Uh, John, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, in a letter that John wrote, he says this, but you belong to God. I just want you to just sit with that one for a second. If you know Jesus, you belong to God. No matter what is happening or not happening, do not forget who you belong to. You belong to God. You have already won a victory over those people. Those people in this reference is people who are trying to get in your way of walking with God. You've already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. If you have relationship with Christ, he's given you his spirit, and the spirit that lives within us is greater than the one who lives in the world, is greater than anything that could ever happen to us. Or Jesus, John quotes Jesus in his gospel when Jesus said, I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you're going to have many trials and sorrows. Imagine if it stopped there, period. You're just going to have a hard go at it. You'll have many trials and many sorrows and many storms, period. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He reminds us of the end where he says, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus 
has won. So no matter where you are today, please trust the process that God has you in because what he cares more about for you and for me is the relationship that he's trying to draw us into.